Welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt Podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. On this week's episode of the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast, we're talking child homelessness in West Virginia. I have Beth Scohee, the Director of Training at Daymark, and Dr. Perry Blankenship, the former Attendance Director and Homeless Liaison from Dow County Schools, discussing the face of child homelessness in West Virginia possible solutions, controversial solutions. After listening to this podcast episode, I'm sure many of you will rethink your church and charitable giving. I know I will. Join me, your host, Buck Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast. Starting now. According to West Virginia Board of Education's website, there were 10,417 homeless students in the state last year. In 2019, before COVID-19 hit, there were 10,522. It's a decrease of 105 students. What does the child homelessness population look like in McDowell County, Perry, and in Kanawha County, Beth, that y'all are dealing with? So in McDowell County, you know, when you talk about recording homeless, uh you have to consider what that definition entails because homeless has a variety of definitions to it that doesn't mean necessarily that person's living out on the street in a cardboard box because we say homeless so we may say that this person has doubled up with a family member so there's two families in the same home uh they may uh not be in their own home but be in transit so a student may be going from couch to couch, staying with friends. So there's a variety of things when you're looking at that position and that that definition. Uh, McDowell County has a high rate of students who live with someone other than their biological parents. So that's probably over 50%. And so there's a lot of those students that take up that category. And it's usually related to drugs, um, parents who just completely disconnect for those reasons. Beth? Well, I would agree with everything that that he said. Um, then there's also youth who are in foster care. Yes. Um, and so that's that's a population as well. Uh, as he said, there are we call them couch surfing youth. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not living outside in a box. Uh, they may not go to a shelter on their own. Um, they instead will go to um, a friend's house and stay and the parents might not even know what's going on and they'll stay there until the parents says you know why aren't why are you still here you know should i call your mom no i'll, I'll go home and then they go to the next friend yes um so we have you know that has kind of taken the place of the traditional runaway that we used to see you know back in the the 70s and 80s um, an after school special, you know, kid ran away from home and and got on a Greyhound bus and went to New York and 
you know, became a prostitute. Uh, that, that's the after school special that I saw, you know. Uh, now those those youth go to a friend's house or go stay with grandma or an aunt or something like that mm-hmm. instead of getting on a, I guess we got, I guess we got the message out that that was really dangerous to be out on the street for kids. The feds have two definitions, one from HUD and the other from Department of Education. On a national level, by HUD's definition, 580,466 people experienced homelessness last year. It jumped 2.2% since 2019. 71,575 people were in families with children. Uh, During HUD's 2020 point in time count, there was 115 persons with at least one child, an adult, in West Virginia. Couch surfing, doubling up, no longer counts as uh, being homeless under HUD's current definition. Do y'all think that should? Or is it painting an inaccurate definition if you're saying that you, since you're technically housed, but you don't own or you're not paying rent. You're not paying a mortgage on that, you know? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what HUD is look, what, why they're, you know, I'm sure they have a reason for, for, you know, that number. Um, but a, a kid will say a, a, that's 13, 14 years old. They're not, we're not going to put them in apartment, you know, a, a traditional homeless shelter the the focus there is going to be finding someone housing, finding a job, housing, and, and getting them set up to to live on their own. You're not going to do that with 14 year old, at least not in six weeks time. You know, so so that when you're talking about children, your focus is going to have to be different. What you know with children, your focus is going to be more key keeping them safe. Would you agree with that, doctor? I would, uh, depending on the situation and circumstances. You know, for HUD's purposes, I mean, I don't think that HUD really looks at youth the way that we look at youth. I think they're more focused on adults. So I would say that's the reason that definitions come into play. Uh, Because an adult living with a relative uh, can go out and function and find a job and find work and have shelter. But when we're thinking about how do we meet the needs of youth, if I have a youth that's couch surfing, I need to be able to help support that youth. Now, there's many different reasons for that youth to be couch surfing. It could be maybe there's uh, domestic violence in the home. Uh, And so, you know, they're trying to escape that domestic violence. And so if they're not labeled in the school system as homeless, then the funding that I have to help purchase clothing and other items for that youth goes away. So I don't know that I would agree with HUD's definition as far as as it entails for the school system. But as far as housing, I may go along with that because like I said, adults are a little bit different. Kanawha County had 622 homeless students last year. The previous year, they had 652, a drop in 30 students. Kanawha is the second in the state when it comes to child homelessness. Jefferson County is the worst with 1,206 homeless students last year. The year before, Jefferson County had 1,411 homeless students. McDowell placed 17th in the state when it comes to homeless children. 
McDowell County Schools had 206 homeless students last year and 149 in 2019. That's a 57 student increase. Have y'all noticed that big time, Perry? We have, and our population is different. So when you're thinking about students per capita, so if you're thinking about Jefferson County, their population is big compared to our population. So when you're thinking about 200 and some students in a population of only 17,000 and some people, that's a big number because that's a big percentage of your population that's considered to be homeless. And so it, it, it does impact the students. It's impacting their ability to stay, you know, in the education system. It's impacting their ability to get the things that they need to be, become successful citizens, as you know, we might say. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a big turnaround for us. And like I said, they're leaving for different reasons. Um, I, I, what I find a lot of times is a lot of them are trying to escape something that they want to get away from because we talk about drug addictions. Um, how do you get away from a family that's dealing drugs unless you literally just leave the family? Uh, so it's it's a, there's many different challenges and variety of things that we're looking at. So yes, it's a big impact. How do y'all feel the state of West Virginia prioritizes children when it comes to uh, putting a dent into child homelessness and uh, poverty? Like child poverty in the state's twenty percent pretty bad that that's tough because you're not going to get a kid i mean you know when you say child and i'm assuming we're not you know we're talking about under 18 um you know and child that like we're talking about six-year-olds too you know what are you going to do you know the the assistance or the education um the culture that all is going to have to come from the parent um you know, a, a child can't really do anything about their poverty, you know, honestly. I mean, yeah, a 16-year-old can get a job, and but they're probably not going to get one that's going to pull them out of poverty. Um, so that child poverty is going to have to, the solution to that is going to have to be aimed at parents, not not children. And you have to think about the definition of poverty, too, because we have work in poverty. So we have families that are working, but they are working at such a place with such low income, raising their children that they're considered in the poverty area. Uh, you would take probably just about anybody working in a minimum wage job would definitely be considered poverty. Uh, we know that that's increasing. We know that that's getting a little bit better. The only downside to that is the economy is going to increase with that. So they're still going to stay in poverty. Uh, so thinking about youth, we are blessed to, to live in a, in a state where that the state itself may not always be able to hit every avenue, but we have a lot of people who are willing to have good hearts. Uh, I know in McDowell County, we have a book of resources, of you know, clothing closets, food pantries. Uh, the schools are hitting it at every angle. I know they send home backpacks to feed these kids you know, on the weekend. Uh, there's if they know that kids need clothing. Uh, so the people, I think the people step up and do a lot more than what people realize that they're doing. So this, as far as the state, I agree with Beth. I think the state's probably doing just about everything they can as far as the youth goes. 
uh, the focus then turns back to adults for them. And, and it, it, it takes a whole generation to cycle through that too. You know, it you're going to have to get a generation of kids or, you know, that are going to go, um, that are going to enter college apprenticeships, you know, get good paying jobs, and, you know, and then have their own kids. And then those kids hopefully will not be in poverty, you know, and, um, and there, there are people out there that, that help. Um, I think that it's important that the people that need the resources know about them because I think yeah. there's a, there's a disconnect there, you know, and in my, um, one of our programs works with homeless young adults and they're from 16 to 21. And especially when they leave us, I, I work very hard to stay in contact with them and let them know what's out there. You know, yeah. it's not just really enough to say, you know, get a job, get an apartment and here you go, but to let them know where, when they get into trouble, who they can call in the community and where they can go to get more help. Yeah. You know, I think Beth alluded to a big topic there. Uh, we have to change the way people look at things. So changing the generation. And I know coming from the school system, I can tell you that a lot of our parents do not value education. And so they don't see the importance in their child growing. Um, we have generational uh, families who are what we call generational check seekers. You know, they, they look for a check early on and they... Uh, plan to live on that check and their child live on those checks for the rest of their life. And so one of the things that McDowell County is doing, uh, Amanda Payton there in the Board of Education has, uh, it's a home visitation program. And so they have teachers who go out to the homes and work with the parents and the grandparents to try to establish dreams and goals with these parents and help them to see how their child can accomplish these dreams and goals and be successful. And so I think changing the mindset is going to be a big piece. Do y'all think raising the minimum wage would help as well? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't. For the simple reason, uh, when the minimum wage gets raised, the economy is going to raise with it. If you look back through history, you'll see that the economy raises to a match and go above any raise that we give to minimum wage. The downside to that is, is those people who have established wages, like me, for example, I have established wage. As the economy increases, my net value decreases. So I, I have less buying power. So actually, it's pulling more people towards the poverty level instead of bringing people away from the poverty level. Right, right. Because people like me that are say fifty and up, I'm I'm not I'm probably not going to make a whole lot more than I'm making now. Uh huh. So if McDonald's raises minimum wage and my Big Mac costs more, I'm just I'm going to buy less Big Macs. Yeah, your buying power gets lost. So we're actually we're we're making a disadvantage for families because we're pulling families more towards a more poverty-stricken ideal. When you go back and you look at some of the original ideals of minimum wage jobs, they were not designed for families to live on. Right. Minimum wage jobs were really designed for high school students and college students to offset their finances while they were gaining education. 
for a lot well, of people we, are living on them. Yeah, that's what we've done. A lot of people have now turned around and tried to raise families on that, and that's not what it was originally designed for. How do you all think we address increasing wages while stabilizing costs that everybody, you know, utilities, food? How do you all think we should go about doing it? So that we don't have a problem with poverty and we don't have a problem with homelessness because something's got to give the per capita income from 2019 is like $26,480 in West Virginia. That's not a lot for someone to live on or a family. It, it's not. But here's the thing. If we're not careful by raising minimum wage, look at what's going to happen with the stores. We already see it at Walmart. They have self-checkout lines. Um, in order to cut costs, that's what's going to happen. They're going to cut out people and use more automated systems to run these systems so that they can maintain their level of finance. I mean, you've got to have, if you're a business person, you know that you've got to have so much revenue. All right. And we already know that there's fully automated restaurants running overseas. In order for me to go buy that big Macbeth, uh, they're going to have to make it automated for me to be able to afford it. Because I can tell you right now, like yesterday, I went to Taco Bell to buy something just for me. Three soft tacos and one gordita cost me almost 15 bucks. I was, I was going to say lunch is 15 bucks. Yeah. And, and, and think about that. For me, and, and I make decent finances, for me, that's, that's pretty big for lunch imagine a family of four trying to do that. So we're, we're you know, we, we have to look at pros and cons to everything. And, and I agree because now I, I'll tell you, I came from the poverty area. And, but, I you know, we have to help find ways to get these people beyond just a minimum wage job to where they can move, be, you know, increase in life. Um, because I don't think, I don't think it's just raising money is going to make it better. I, I don't see how we can how we can sustain costs and raise finances at the same time. Because for me to pay, and I want you to think about this, for, for me to pay somebody $20,000 a year, by the time I get their benefits and all that other on top of there, you're talking $50,000, $60,000 that I'm actually paying out every year for this person. But I think part of it, and I know that that probably the school system is in McDowell County is doing it just like the school system is here and, and like the the youth care systems, you know, we're trying to while kids are in our care, we're trying to get them um, educated. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like one of our biggest program focuses is you have to go to school um, and getting them some sort of post-secondary education as well. Uh, get into community college, get into an apprenticeship. Um, I mean, college is great. You know, I went to college, but it's not for everybody. It's not. And, um, you know, if, and we need plumbers and we need electricians. Yes, we do. Um, And so to, uh, you know, uh, and we have a couple of our young adults that are in, um, in a program for phlebotomy and EKG you know, to work in healthcare. And so we encourage that so that when, you know, they're 20, they can get a job someplace that's not Taco Bell, uh-huh. you know, that they can get a job at, um, at a hospital 
in a doctor's office. Um, I have a young lady now who's uh, working on her CNA certified nursing assistant program um, is working. It, it is part time, but it's, it's like 35 hours a week. It's not quite full time, um, but she's working in an assisted living facility and she's working on getting her CNA mm-hmm. and she's 18. So, you know, hopefully by the time she's 20, she'll be making pretty decent money. Yes. And I think encourage those things. I think one of the things that could be changing the school system is when I worked there, because I've been a school counselor, school psychologist. So I've worked in several areas. I think one thing would help, and I think it would reduce the dropout rate and increase their success rate is if they started the technical schools in, in middle school. Because I had boys and girls who academically, just like Beth said, we knew that academically they weren't going to go to college. But man, they could tear a car apart and put it back together. They could tear a motorcycle apart and put it back together. They could build a house. If we would start instilling that into them in middle school, sixth, seventh grade, and let them build those skills, because I used to be a carpenter. I used to build houses. You make decent money building houses. Mm-hmm. You can make decent money being a carpenter or mechanic or, or plumber. So I think getting that in mindset into them early on, I think would increase that. And especially you're going to find out a lot in poverty stricken families that the dropout rate is a lot higher. And, and I'll just, this just popped into my head. So I'll just go ahead and say it and hope I'm, not say anything controversial here, but military, um, you know, increasing the, um, oh, in- encouraging people to go into military because they're going to learn valuable skills there. Um, and that is something that they'll have that forever. And, you know, even without a GI bill, with a GI bill or without a GI bill, you know, and coming out of that, then especially if they don't know exactly what it is they want to do, because that's hard, you know, when you're 18 and okay, what are you going to do the rest of your life? Eh, you know, but to, to go into the military and the military will help them figure that out. Yes, it will. I'm a hundred percent service connected veteran. So uh, I agree, Beth. Uh, and, and it is a good place for, for a lot of people. It's not, again, it's not something for everybody, but I can tell you this, that's if, I mean, you can look on my wall behind me, the military is what helped me get those degrees that's hanging on the wall behind me uh, because they helped pay for my education. They helped encourage me to go for education. I am the first person in my family who went to college. And, and those ideals and those thoughts of being able to be successful came from my military service. And while during that four years or six years or eight years or 10 years or whatever, they're not homeless. No, they're not. You know, I, I they have may a, feel like it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> they might be on a they might be on a boat out in the middle of the, <laughs> out in the oh, middle of the ocean. Out in the on beer black, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they're not homeless. When it comes to homeless children and youth, what demographics are you seeing? Homeless white, black, Latinx, Asian American, Pacific Islanders, LGBT, children with mental health or developmental disabilities, or is it just a mixed bag? For McDowell County? Yeah. It's, it's pretty even across the board. I mean, it's impacted all of them. There, 
Uh, poverty ha has not been blinded to, you know, and, and it's not hit one area more than others. So it's across the board for all. Yeah, when, when you get, went down your list, uh, my answer would have been yes. You know, it's because we're in West Virginia where we don't have a large um, Pacific Islander population. Right. Then that's not a big demographic for us. Um, but, you know, black, white, yellow, green, purple, whatever, you know, it, I don't think homelessness is colorblind. No, it's not. Nor is poverty. Beth, how many of the young people that you come across with New Connections and, and Daymark in general are experiencing child abuse and neglect? Oh, most. I mean, almost. I, I, I mean, I, I, if they haven't been a victim of it, then they've seen it. Um, you know, they've seen domestic violence. They've, they've definitely witnessed it or they've been a victim of it. Um, maybe not a hundred percent, but, but a very high percentage. And it's, it's that trauma that has, um, you know, when we talk about the education, the trauma that they've experienced when they experienced the abuse, when they experienced the neglect, when they saw it, that's all traumatizing. And, uh, and we know now, you know, that that has an, uh, an impact on the growing and the developing brain. Yes, it and, and so that, you know, that impacts the education and that impacts the future, the future, you know. So I'd say almost all, you know, maybe not all, but if not abuse, then definitely neglect. Almost what about all. you, Perry? Well, I'll say it this way. That's one of the reasons that brought me back to full-time mental health again, uh, because I see that in our culture, a lot of the abuse and the neglect is so been culturally ingrained that people no longer see it as that. It's, it's almost, well, this is natural. This is what we naturally do. So for students to report to me, abuse and neglect, they witness on the same rate as they might somewhere else where this has already been taught, this has already been spotlighted, that this is not appropriate and good. And what I mean by that is this. I watch the students coming into the school system, the males, how they treat the teachers, the female teachers. In their home, women are subservient to men, so that becomes an automatic way they talk to women. And, and so that's that's abuse but you know is that being reported that way so i would say that the majority i agree with Beth. the majority of my students i guarantee are experiencing or at least seeing abuse and neglect how much of these young people they are working with who are homeless youth are dealing with substance abuse issues themselves i'll, I'll let you talk first perry maybe i'll figure out how i want to <laughs> Okay. I know it's bad with adults. I figure it's just as bad okay. with you. So if you cut if you come to McDowell County, you know we were flooded with opioid issues. I mean, I, I work for Day Report down there, so I do a substance abuse groups too. And it's just it's flooded. It's and the youth, um to to have a kid in elementary tell us that they're they're experimenting with drugs is no surprise. 
because again it because oh yes because you know it's it's again it's become something that's cultural um when i was in the middle school my boys and girls i mean they when i talked to them about you know staying in school and getting a job they're starting to tell me about their aunts and their uncles who sell drugs who have boats and cars and trucks and i mean four-wheelers and and so they see it as something lucrative and they see it as as something good and 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 of course when you live in a, a rural area like mcdowell county there's not a lot of things to offer to these youth to do so what's the next thing they do is drink and do drugs and so yeah i think it's pretty prevalent although i will say and you know that by the time they're you know you're talking about the the grade school kids that are experimenting many times by the time they're 17 they've already seen enough that they're done they're not going to do that you know they have seen what it does to mom dad brother they've they've had family members die from it um have family members that that are in really really bad circumstances because of it and so they might we have several who are adamantly opposed to drugs. Yes, that does happen. And not that that's a, not that that's a good thing, but yes, you know we are seeing some of that now, where kids have been watching this go on in their family for fifteen years, and now yeah. they're they're old enough to go, oh no 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 no, I don't want that. Not for yeah, me. The, the aftercare you know for drug addiction is the big challenging piece because you know we can send people and get them dried out and get them dried out but when they go back to that environment with their friends their family members and all of them are doing it that becomes the biggest challenge because i can tell you working through a uh, drug court and day report that's that's probably the 90 percent main reason why a lot of them relapse and go back into addiction perry how is mcdowell county schools tracking child homelessness Okay, so every year, uh, every school gets a form that shows them how to fill out for homelessness. And so they're sent home at the beginning of year packet that every parent gets and every guardian gets. And so th they fill those out, we get those back, and then they're entered into our school system's data file. So they're done electronically. And how is homelessness impacting these young people's educational performance? Uh, their attendance is terrible. When, when when we identify students that are homeless that we can we you can go back and look that there's a direct link to uh critical or what we would call a student who is at high risk for dropout because their attendance is so poor 23 states in washington dc has source of income laws that protect section 8 voucher recipients from being discriminated against landlords can't refuse them with housing rising sharply in Kanawha County, not sure about McDowell, do you think West Virginia should adopt such a statute to help get more people off the street to find landlords to take their Section 8 voucher? <laughs> That's a challenging question because if you're a landlord, you'd be like, oh, no, 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 because then I'm going to lose money. What I'm seeing in the southern part of West Virginia, I'm sure you both know that the Hatfield and McCoy trails are booming. And they're growing more and more and i can tell you as a person who used to rent in southern west virginia that that made it challenging for me to find a place to rent 
so instead of me paying you four or $500 a month, they can get four or $500 a week out of trail riders. So that's becoming a challenge for, so I don't know that it's discrimination per se, but I think it's the fact that they're looking at where they can get the best revenue. But we go back to that again, that if, if you have some resources, there are lots of good people out there that, you know, might not take a HUD voucher, but they'll rent, especially to a young person um, for, you know, $500 a month, which if you have a minimum wage job, that's, that's about what you can do, you know? Yes. And, and so that's part of our job too, as they are, you know, people who are in this field mm-hmm. is to, to point that kids, if you will, into that direction and to show them what to look for, you know, because we don't want them to be victims of slum lords, you know, and no. we don't want them to be paying every cent they own, um, you know, and having shade, you know, living in shady places and, you know, in dangerous places. In Charleston, it's like the average rent for a good two bedroom apartment, $700, $800. If you get less than that, it's difficult to find a landlord that isn't a slum lord. That's the thing, you know. Yeah. And I don't know where you found $800 because I looked in Charleston for a place to rent because I was going to pastor a church there in St. Albans area. And and for a decent home, the best I could find was about a thousand bucks a month for a two bedroom apartment. Yeah. Yes, Beth, you work a lot with homeless people who are young, young homeless people um, in their teens to early twenties. Right. How do most of these young people wind up homeless and knocking on y'all's doors? Does the police bring them to you, or do they like do they see like a sign somewhere and like call y'all up? Who refers them to you all? Um. Sometimes child protective services, um, even though they're, you know, even though they might be 18, they might still be in foster care. Youth can sign when a youth, a foster care youth on the day they turn 18, they can sign themselves back into care. You know, they can say, no, I want to stay in the system. I'm not ready. Um, And so uh, sometimes that happens. Uh, School counselors. Two recently, two recent young men that I've had recently um, were referred to me by their school counselor, one uh, Riverside High School and one South Charleston High School. So the school counselors. Um, We have a a high school equivalency um, component to our program um, for, I mean, it used to be called GED, but but we don't do that anymore so um but we have so we have youth that are in that program and sometimes and so they're here every day and they know what's going on in the other parts of the building so they might say oh well you know i have a friend who got kicked out um or i'm about to get kicked out um and so sometimes it happens that way too covenant house has a um like a one-stop shopping type thing, centralized assessment. And so if a a young person, 17, 18, 19 year old person would walk into Covenant House and say, you know, I'm homeless, then Covenant House would give me, 
you know, or the people working there would give me a call. So What's that, the outcomes with your um, clients? Well, it's all over the board. Um, Do most of them remain stably housed? Right now, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I'll tell you my, what happened to me in August. Um, I had um, I had three youth in my program in my apartments. I had one out in the community, but there were three in my in my upstairs apartments. And during one week, two of them left. One of them, um, I helped her move into an apartment on the west side. Um, and you know, we got all her stuff together. We packed up the van. You know, we drove across town. You know, we had already seen it. She'd signed a lease. You know, and it was a happy day. Then I think, and that was either Wednesday or Thursday. On Saturday, I took a young man to college. Wow. And um, he moved into a dormitory. Cool deal. He had a, he had a scholarship um, at a, a West Virginia college. Um, it was a mixed blessing because it was the hottest day of the year. He had a dorm room on the third floor of a non-air conditioned, non-air conditioned oh, dorm um, with no elevator. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't, didn't really enjoy that part of the day. Um, but, you know, when, when I left him and I said, Hey, you know, you're going to do great things. And so, so those two, you know, those were great things. I had one, uh, one young man that left here in, I think he left here in May and went into, uh, went to the Marine Corps. Cool deal. Um, and I had a young lady who had been in placement uh, for a long time, had been in foster care for a long time, and she just really wanted to go home. And her um, team had decided that home was a safe place for her. And so she was here for a little while, but we were able to work things out so that she could make a safe transition home. And she was 17, you know, so it wasn't like a, a child going back into that situation. I think that probably she went home and kind of became the, the grown up, you know, because she'd had a lot of help, you know, and she, she'd gotten a lot of service and a lot of help and, and had learned a lot in her time in placement. So right now, you know, I, I feel like, um, like our kids are doing good. Um, you know, if we're able to hang on to them for a little while and teach them some skills, um, I've got three in my independent living program right now. All three have jobs. Um, so that's, that's exciting. Two of them are in school and one has graduated. Um, so right now, you know, I know I can't save everyone. None of us can, you know, but, um, but right now I'm feeling pretty excited. How many young people do you have to turn away like from your program because you don't have enough units and stuff? Well, yeah. And that's, that's sad. Um, do you have you to turn that, away a lot of young people? I have a waiting list. I try not to say turn away. Um, you know, and sometimes I call back and in the time between the time that they've contacted me and the time I have a place for them, they found another place and that's great. Um, well, you know, she found a, a program in, one recently found a program in Wheeling, 
How long is that waiting list? Well, right now, I might have a I might have an opening in December, possibly. Based on too painfully long. Yeah, based on where everybody is right now, I could possibly have an opening in December. And we're always I have five apartments, but I can only only have enough funding right now for three. So, you know, if I could if I could find a pot of money someplace, um, you know, I have two more. You know, I could I could do two more kids and I'd love that. And that's in now that's in my independent living program, of course, you know, our other programs, Patchwork and Turning Point, that's a little bit different situation. So what's going on with Dow County when it comes to helping at-risk homeless youth? For McDowell County, we are pretty blessed in that nature uh, because people have been pretty generous about uh, letting people stay with them. Um, I do not, I, I don't think that I've ever driven through the county where I've actually seen somebody sleeping on the street or, you know, in a, in a, under a bridge or anything like that. Uh, so I think a lot of times the generosity of the people have really, really taken that up. Now, how long that person's able to stay there kind of varies. So like Beth said a while ago, they may end up bouncing from place to place to place, which I don't think is good for someone or, and it's not stable because you don't always have that stable environment to go to. Um, but as far as I know, um, I think the, I think the community itself kind of meets that need right now. It's, it's, I mean, it's getting colder. It is. Um, like as of this morning, it's getting colder. So, uh, you know, there might, there will be an uptick. What help is out there for young people besides y'all's programs that y'all are involved in? Well, I think that, that most young people can always go to their school counselor and the school counselors is a great resource because I think the counselors pretty much know, you know, can, are a great way to refer youth and say, Hey, you can do this. You can do this. You can go this and call here. Uh, school counselors are great churches. You know, I know our church youth group, our youth pastor um, knows a lot too, you know, and the, yeah. so people uh, rec centers after school programs, people that work with youth on a regular basis if the kids will talk to those adults in those positions, I think they'd be surprised at how much the adults know, or at least know where to, you know, who else they can talk to. Yes, I agree with Beth. We have a lot of community partners that are ready. Um, our school counselors were always on top of things like that. We also have some social workers in our schools that are really good social workers that really know where the stuff is, know how to get the forms or get to the person. Uh, you know, we were networked really, really well in McDowell County with different agencies for different plans and different things. And I believe me, there's people out there who's got a willing heart and who, who have the fun, have the resources. It's just, Beth said it earlier, making sure to make those connections. And so there's a lot in our county. Do y'all have a lot of LGBT youth knocking on y'all's doors? We have a lot of kids that don't know whether or not they're don't know that yet. I mean, really, you know, I mean, because that's kind of a standard thing 
that I may ask a youth, um, you know, how do you identify? And they're like, I don't know. You know. You hear it being a problem up in New England, but you don't, you know, hear about it in West Virginia a lot. I'm not going to say it's not a problem, um, but it's it's not a defining problem in my experience, in my recent experience, you know, and a lot of children, adolescents aren't sure yet. And we're, we're okay with that. You know, I go, Oh, okay. Well, let me know if you have a question, you know, and we talk about safety, of course. What about McDowell County? I don't see it as a, as a problem. Uh, per se. I, I'm not saying there's not any problems with it because I know that we are very rich in uh, culture as far as our religion and things go of that nature. So I'm sure there are some family conflicts over that because of belief systems. But I agree with Beth, especially right now, there's just so many different things coming at, at people of definitions of whether you're this, whether you're that, whether you're he, she, they, there are all these different pronouns. And, and so I think it's really confused a lot of our youth more than really give them away or empower them to identify themselves. Are y'all so seeing any that, migrant children, homeless children? No, we really don't have any issues with that in McDowell County either. I, I have not heard of that. I mean, I'm not saying that we haven't seen it, but it's not been such that somebody has said, Hey, you know what happened? You know, it's, if 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 we had that, it wasn't um, communicated as an issue. Beth, how does one get in touch with you to enter into one of your Daymark programs? Um, well, you can go to our website, which is www.daymark.org, and I, I think you click on our people, and it has you know who you would call depending on what you want or. You know, you can just call the main Daymark office, and I usually answer the phone. So that, um, and my number is 304-340-3675. Um, and I will, if, if I can't help you, I'll point you in the right direction. My takeaway from this week's episode on West Virginia child homelessness is that the people who are at the table dealing with it aren't too interested in long-term sustainable solutions to the problem that will likely morph from child to adult homelessness. Raising the minimum wage to a regional living wage would increase people's buying power and offset grocery and clothing costs and stabilize local economies on top of alleviating a ton of poverty and homelessness. In terms of income housing discrimination, there's a ton of landlords that refuse Section 8 housing choice vouchers not because they don't want to take them, but because HUD housing authorities won't allow voucher recipients to live in dilapidated housing. If we want to run slumlords out of business, the West Virginia legislature and legislatures all across the country should pass a law forbidding Section 8 voucher discrimination. And as far as encouraging young homeless folks to enlist in the military to survive, that's beyond crazy. Lots of West Virginians think they're going to escape all their woes here at home and create a world of opportunity for themselves by joining the military. Until their asses get sent off to fight in a needless war, 
If they don't come back dead or maimed, they bring the war home with them. Like this country needs more vets with PTSD and committing suicide. Yet who's the big demographic joining in the state? The poor! And they're dying or they're getting post-traumatic stress disorder for what? Free market capitalism. The mentality many West Virginians have when it comes to addressing poverty and homelessness is go knock on the door of a church or charity for help and give, give, give to them. The sad thing is most West Virginia churches and charities that offer direct support services to those in need are not talking about self-sufficiency, economic diversification, ending harmful unfair trade deals, slum lords, living wages, pay inequality, affordable housing, expanding needle exchanges, mandatory paid leave, rent control, inclusionary housing and zoning, and ending Section 8 voucher discrimination. They're only interested in milking homelessness, poverty, drug addiction, and other societal ills. Out of all the charities offering direct support services in West Virginia, I'm only aware of two talking about living wages, affordable housing, and Medicare for All. Covenant House in Charleston and Harmony House in Huntington. That's pathetic. If you are a charity and you aren't talking about pay inequality, universal health care, living wages, affordable housing, and jumping on policymakers to address these problems, you aren't doing squat to put a dent into child or adult homelessness, poverty, drug addiction, crime, and helping to mend broken homes. You're only milking human suffering and aren't worthy of anyone giving you money. If you are a business and you want to help alleviate poverty and homelessness, instead of throwing money away on a bunch of sketchy charities, invest that money back into your workforce, especially if more than a fifth of your employees are working two jobs or more to get by. Your employees should be your number one priority and charitable giving should be at the bottom of the totem pole. Paying your employees competitive living wages is how we systematically alleviate poverty and a host of other societal ills, including homelessness, both child and adult. I want to thank my guests, Beth Scohey and Dr. Perry Blankenship for making me more cynical of churches and charities. Praise be to him. You can listen to the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Check out my website, mothmaninthebiblebelt.com, for updates on podcast outlets and also direct links to my social media. Thanks for listening.